What is your creed? What do you believe? Everyone has a, a statement of belief, a creed. That's what a creed is. It's a statement of belief or first principles. Everyone has a creed, whether it's written down for all to see or it's just privately written upon your heart. So what is your creed? What do you believe? More than 25 years ago, English poet, biographer, and rock music critic Steve Turner wrote a, a poetic creed that he thought typified uh, the belief of most people in the Western world if they were just honest about what was written on their hearts. In other words, Steve Turner, he made public what was private on the hearts of many men and women in the Western world. Here's a, here's a portion of Turner's creed. We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe that everything is okay as long as we don't hurt anyone to the best definition of hurt, to our best definition of hurt, and to the best of our knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery can be helpful. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything's getting better, despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated. You can prove anything with evidence. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, although we think his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same. At least the one we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only matter on, differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after death comes the nothing. Because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If, the de if death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all. Excepting perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in the most recent survey. What's selected is average. What's average is normal. What's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. We believe that there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth. Accepting the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds. Well, in his poetic creed, Turner was making public much of what was written on the hearts of many in Western civilization 25 years ago. And much of it still rings true today, doesn't it? Marx, Freud, and Darwin are still gladly embraced. Many demand the right to define hurt according to their feelings. Despite all evidence to the contrary, it's still widely held that man is essentially good, that it's only his behavior that lets him down, and that this is the fault of society. And there remains a rejection of absolute truth, accepting the truth that there's, only, there, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Well, Turner's creed was a parody, of course, poking fun at common beliefs in Western culture. But if we're honest, Turner's creed did serve to make public what was private. Christians have long made their creeds public and therefore available to scrutiny. The Apostles' Creed, to mention only one example, likely emerged sometime in the late 2nd century, and it has been available for public scrutiny ever since. 
The Apostles' Creed was probably not written by the Apostles themselves. There were some legends that uh, each of the 12 Apostles wrote a line in the Creed, but that seems unlikely just based upon the structure of the Creed itself. The Apostles' Creed was not written so much by Jesus' Apostles as it was written to reflect the teaching of Jesus' Apostles. The goal was undoubtedly to put into words a succinct summation of the Apostles' teaching concerning the Christian faith. And the earliest form of the Apostles' Creed emerged as a list of questions which candidates for baptism would be asked as they prepared to enter into visible membership in the Church of Jesus Christ. So the, the candidate would be asked, do you believe in God the Father? And the candidate would answer, I believe. The candidate would be asked questions about Jesus Christ. Do you believe these things about Jesus Christ? And the candidate would answer, I believe. The candidate would be asked a series of things about the Holy Spirit and the Church. And the candidate would answer, I believe. This question and answer format of the Apostles' Creed uh, was used by a pastor in Rome named Hippolytus as early as 215 AD. The Apostles' Creed it was refined throughout the years, and it likely reached its final form sometime around the 7th century. We use an English translation of that final form in our corporate worship services like we did this morning in order to confess our faith, to make public what is all too often personal and just private. The Apostles' Creed was written as a way of expressing and professing the Christian faith in simple biblical language. And so this brings me to why we, today we are beginning an occasional doctrinal series on the Apostles' Creed. Now for many of you, this is a puzzling experience here this morning. Uh, Sunday after Sunday, we open our Bibles and we see what God has to say to us in His holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible Word. So for many of you, that's why you joined this church, because we preach the Bible. We think God's Word is supremely authoritative and sufficient for every matter relating to life and doctrine and salvation. So what are we doing? You're perhaps asking yourself, talking about the Apostles' Creed. Shouldn't we be talking about the Bible? Well, I want to be clear. Nothing about our belief in the supremacy and the sufficiency of Scripture has changed. In fact, as strange as it may sound, through this doctrinal series on the Apostles' Creed, I intend to preach the Bible. I intend to preach the Bible because the Apostles' Creed is simply a summary of the Bible's teaching. So in this series, as we go back and look at short phrases from the Creed, my plan is to take us back to the Scriptures to see the biblical truth that each phrase of the Creed is resting upon. So for example, today, as we look at those two words, we believe... What we're really going to do is examine what the scriptures teach us about belief and faith in Jesus Christ. So we'll look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 and 5, and other important passages which teach us about the nature of saving faith. You might want to start doing your finger exercises uh, right now because I intend to take us all over the Bible. And don't be ashamed uh, if you have difficulty finding your way through the Bible. Just use that table of contents. The Bible is a very big book, and we all get lost in it from time to time. This, this exercise of, of examining the Apostles' Creed, considering the Bible's teaching on the core truths of the Christian faith, is important for all Christians. It is important to know what we believe and why we believe it. It is important for all Christians to be able to express and explain what we believe and why we believe it. As uh, the men I read the, the Bible with on Wednesday morning this past week, as we discussed just this past week from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we must be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that we have within us. 
So whether you are a Christian who is young or old in the faith, you should always be revisiting, refreshing, relearning what it is we believe. What are the core truths of the Christian faith? And so I, I pray that this series serves you to that end. And this, this exercise concerning the Bible's teaching on the core truths of the Christian faith should be helpful to those of you who are gathering here with us to explore just what it is Christians believe. Maybe you grew up going to church, but you didn't pay much attention as you were growing up. And at some point, perhaps you stopped going altogether. Uh, maybe you're now contemplating whether or not you should return to Jesus. Uh, but you need to get a handle on what it is Christians really and truly believe about him. Maybe you're, you're not a believer. Maybe you never have been. Maybe you've never been to church, but a, a Christian invited you along. Maybe you're, you're here and you're interested in the question, what do Christians believe? Well, friend, if that's you, I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, you really should want to go back to the sources themselves and see what the scriptures say about the Christian faith. And so I hope that this series will help you investigate uh, the scriptures for yourself and see what it is the Bible teaches and what Christians really and truly believe. Now, as we turn to take up the first phrase of the creed, we believe, here's how I'd like for us to proceed. And these are the four headings which are going to structure uh, the rest of the sermon. Four headings. Defense, doctrine, devotion, and dedication. There should be uh, an outline in a number of the bulletins they're provided. Under the heading defense, we're going to consider a biblical defense of the use of creeds. Short statements which summarize the Christian faith. Under the heading doctrine, we're, we're going to consider uh, those words we believe. What's the doctrine embedded in those words that we find in the Bible? So we'll ask and answer questions like, according to the Bible, what is faith? What is belief? What does it mean to believe? And who or what do we place our faith in? Under the heading devotion, we'll consider what we should praise God for in response to this doctrine. All doctrine should be doxological. By that mean uh, praise-oriented. All doctrine should drive us to praise God for who He is and what He's done. And then fourthly and finally, under the heading of dedication, we'll ask how this should shape our lives. How should this change our lives, transform our lives? In what way should we be freshly dedicated to God the Father who made heaven and earth, gave us His one and only most beloved Son, poured out His Spirit and brought us to faith in Jesus Christ and fellowship in His church? That's the path that we're going to pursue today. Defense, doctrine, devotion, and dedication. Let's dive in. First, let's consider a biblical defense of creeds. If you would, please turn in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. That's on page 946 of the Bibles provided. Romans 10, 9 and 10, page 946 of the Bibles provided. As we begin to consider a biblical defense of creeds, you should understand what I mean by the word creed. We get our English word for creed from the Latin credo, which simply means I believe. So when we're talking about a creed, we're simply talking about a statement of belief. As we read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, what you will see is that the scriptures assume Christians will make confessions. The scriptures assume that Christians will make a confession of faith. They will offer a statement of belief. Read Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. See, the scriptures, they assume that Christians will make a confession 
of faith. And unless you think I'm ripping this out of context, you should understand that Romans 10, in Romans 10, Paul is explaining how anyone can come to be a Christian. They do that by confessing with their mouths and believing in their hearts that God raised them, raised Jesus from the dead. Go back and, and read the wider context of Romans 10 later today. And when you do, you'll find that what Paul is doing is he's explaining that Jesus Christ was the end and goal of the law. That we have no righteousness on our own, for we have not kept the law of God. And so we trust in, we believe in Jesus Christ. And that trust and heart belief is meant to flow out into a public confession. Christian faith flows out into a confession. This is why we see all kinds of statements of belief in the Bible itself. One of my favorite examples is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. So turn there. That's page 992 of the Bibles provided. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. When you get there, you'll notice that just as Paul did in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, he summarizes the critical work of Jesus Christ in a succinct confession. Take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 16. Great indeed we confess. Notice the confession again. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. In this single verse, Paul explains that Christians confess these things about Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh, a reference to Jesus' incarnation, that he was vindicated by the Spirit, a reference to Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and by implication, His death on the cross. That He was seen by angels, a, a reference to the fact that Jesus was seen after His resurrection, uh, proclaimed among the nations, a reference to His disciples preaching and teaching, uh, believed on in the world, a reference to His being trusted in, and taken up into glory. It's a reference to His ascension into heaven. And a, a wide range of scholars believe that this is either an early Christian hymn or an early Christian creed. And that this conclusion of this is an early Christian creed makes great sense given the fact that it is a confession. Uh, we could, but we won't turn to, we could turn to places like 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 to 5 and Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 11, which uh, more short, succinct statements of the Christian faith are given in those passages. Creeds are biblical because we see them in the Bible. But the use of creeds is also biblical because the writers of Scripture charge the people of God with passing the faith from one generation to the next generation. Uh, we see this near the very beginning of the Bible. So turn toward the beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 7. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 7. That's on page 151 of the Bibles provided. Now a number of, um, a number of moms and dads in our congregation should be familiar with this passage. Uh, because when I, after you've had a child and I visit you in the hospital, this is very often the passage that I will read to you there in the hospital. So children, a number of you here, uh, you may have heard this passage when you were just a day or two old. Uh, take a look at what we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 7. Think about the passing on of the faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down on the road, and when you rise. So here we have a, a succinct summary of the doctrine of God's oneness. It's true, we believe 
that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, same in essence, equal in power and glory. We are a Trinitarian church. In fact, the, the Apostles' Creed itself is structured by the Trinity. Uh, but here, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is announcing the doctrine of God's oneness. And we're told that parents are to pass that doctrine on to their children. The Lord God uh, does not merely call parents to pass on doctrine. He calls all of God's people to pass on doctrine. So by the time we get to Psalm 145, verse 4, we're told that one generation is to commend God's works to another generation. And then by the time we get to the New Testament, it's clear that the apostles understood that Christians were to pass on a codified body of doctrine. Uh, so turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 995 of the Bibles provided. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. You're going to see Paul is talking about following a pattern, following the form. Paul is writing to Timothy as a, a young pastor that he mentored. And this is what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Some of the older translations use the word form instead of pattern. Paul has given Timothy a particular pattern, a fixed form of theological instruction that he is to hold on to. But he's not just to hold on to it, he's also to pass it on. So if you look ahead just a little bit further in 2 Timothy, if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, uh, chapter is the larger number, the verse is the smaller number. Notice what Paul says to Timothy. He says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust, give it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 5, he says, What was to deliver to me as of first importance, uh, he passed on to others. Right? So already in the first century, the Christian church was beginning to develop tried and true vocabulary to express and confess the Christian faith. To use the words of Jude 3, already the church was recognizing that there was in fact a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints and that it needed to be delivered to the next generation. And so all of this biblical evidence should make it plain to us that even within the pages of the New Testament, the church was in the process of developing creeds, statements of faith, so that the the faith might be properly professed, it might be properly proclaimed, might be properly passed on and protected. That's what creeds do, and it's why they're so useful. Creeds, insofar as they're faithful summaries of God's Word, of the Bible's teaching, they help us to properly profess, proclaim, and pass on and protect the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. So that is my brief biblical defense of creeds. If you want a larger book version of that, you should pick up Carl Truman's Creedal Imperative. That'll give a, a larger defense of the use of creeds. Well, having considered this biblical defense of the use of creeds, what's the doctrine that the Apostles' Creed announces with the words, we believe? So here's the second point, doctrine. And let me just give you the bluff. That's the bottom line up front. Here's my doctrinal definition of faith. Biblical faith or belief is knowledge, conviction, and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Biblical faith or belief is knowledge, conviction, and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. I'm leaning pretty heavily on the late John Murray 
for this definition, which you can find in his wonderful book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, available on the book nook. Um, as we examine the doctrine underneath the words we believe, we must remember that we are most interested in what the scriptures teach about faith or belief. Those two words, faith and belief, they're normally interchangeable in the Bible, uh, referring to the same thing. So what does it mean to believe? And who or what do we place our faith in, according to the Bible? These questions, I think, they're supremely relevant to everyone here this morning. You should want to know whether or not you have real, true, biblical faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at this from the Scriptures. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Some people call it 1 John. 1 John or 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. That's on page 1023 of the Bibles provided. And while you're turning there, let me just tell you a little bit of something of what John is talking about. It's so useful when a writer tells you, I'm writing about this. So in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, the Apostle John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John, late in his life, is probably writing to a church somewhere in and around Ephesus. And he wants his readers to be persuaded that they presently uh, possess eternal life because they believe in the name of the Son of God. And as we read now from 1 John chapter 5, verses, verses 1 to 5, observe that faith belief is connected to knowledge. Knowledge about who Jesus is and what he's done. Follow along. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father, uh, loves who the Father loves, loves whoever's been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I'm sure you can see there from, from that text how John uses faith and belief interchangeably in these verses. He refers to belief in verses 1 and 5 and faith there in verse 4. So from this passage and others, we see that faith involves knowledge. We don't just have faith generally, kind of amorphously or, or nebulously. We don't just have faith. Faith is particular. Uh, it's fixed on a foundation as a focal point. We might have faith in a chair or a handrail, right? For, for instance, we might believe, or the pews that you're sitting in, you might have faith that that pew is going to hold you up, right? But you're believing, trusting in a specific pew, and you know that pew. You're looking at it. You see it. Uh, I, I believe that that handrail will not come off the wall when I grab it. It's specific knowledge, and I know that handrail is there. Similarly, uh, in order for us to believe or place our faith in such things, we must at least know that they exist. So, as we read earlier from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to believe God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists, and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So the, the Apostles' Creed, it, it announces that we believe, we have faith in the triune God. But it spends most of its time focusing on God's only Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you look at the descriptions of faith here in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, we see that faith and belief involves knowing that Jesus is the Christ. Did you see that there in verse 1? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ 
So we must have certain knowledge about who Jesus is and what he has done. We must believe that Jesus is God's Messiah. That's what that phrase, the Christ, means. We must know that Jesus is the Savior and King that God promised to send and rescue sinners like us in the Old Testament. We, we must know that he's the Savior who suffered and died on the cross to rescue us out from under God the Father's judgment and wrath due to our sin. We must know that he's the Savior who was raised from the grave in victory on the third day over sin and death. He had victory that day. Uh, this assures us that our sins may be forgiven and that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we're to place our faith in God, and especially in His Son, Jesus, then we must have knowledge of who Jesus is and what He has done. But knowledge is only one component of faith. We, we may have full knowledge of who God is, of, of who Jesus is and what He has done, but knowledge is not a full description of faith. There's a kind of knowledge-based belief that's not really belief at all. So the Apostle James, he has this really interesting line in his letter uh, where in James chapter 2, verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. And what James is referring to, he's hearkening back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. You believe that God is one. He says, look, even demons have great theology. They understand who God is. They shudder, but that's not belief. Uh, look, you need to uh, not only uh, know who God is, uh, you need to be convinced uh, that God is able to save. So when the Bible ta it talks about faith, it includes knowledge, but it also includes conviction. Faith takes our knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done in hand, and it is thoroughly persuaded that Jesus has accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. So faith, it bears the mark of conviction that Jesus meets our needs. One of the greatest demonstrations of this conviction is found in Matthew chapter 9. So turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 31. That's on page 814 of the Bibles provided. Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 31. And as we read about this miracle, notice that Jesus asks these blind men if they believe. That is, if they're convinced that he has the power necessary to heal them. Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 31, page 814. Matthew writes, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and, said, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. What we're seeing here is that these men believe that Jesus' mercy could meet their misery. Faith is convinced. It, has, it bears the conviction that Jesus is the answer to every sin and misery. These men were convinced that Jesus could heal them. They believed that he was Lord even over their infirmities. Faith is the conviction in the depth of our souls that who Jesus is and what he has done completely satisfies all of the demands of our sin and so secures our salvation. Do you believe that Jesus is able to heal you of your spiritual blindness? Do you believe what we 
saying earlier that your sins, not in part, but the whole, were nailed to the cross and that you now bear them no more because Jesus has borne them all. Are you convinced and persuaded that this is what Jesus has done for you, that he's able to deliver and save you? True biblical faith, it includes knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done. It includes the conviction that Jesus is able to save us. But true biblical faith takes one more step. True biblical faith trusts Jesus for salvation. You see, faith also includes trust. Faith moves from knowledge to conviction to trusting. I love what John Murray said about this aspect of faith. He said that faith is knowledge passing into conviction. And it is conviction passing into confidence. Faith cannot stop short of self-commitment to Christ. A transference of reliance upon ourselves and all human resources to reliance upon Christ alone for salvation. Who are you trusting in to save you from the just judgment due to your sins? Are you relying upon yourself or upon Jesus alone? I'm reminded of the rich young man in Matthew chapter 19 verse 16 who came to Jesus and asked Jesus, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Think about that question. What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? That question, it reveals so much, doesn't it? He, he knows that something must be done or he will not have eternal life. He's convinced of the necessity of something being done. He trusts there some good work that he can do. His question revealed that he believed that it was in his power to secure eternal life all by himself. He was trusting in his strength, in his morality, and in his wealth, but not in Jesus. True trusting faith is not like that at all. It is like the miserable tax collector of Luke chapter 18, verse 13, who beats his breast and proclaims, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He relies fully upon the mercy of God. Jesus tells us that that miserable tax collector cried, who cried out to God for mercy, he went to his home justified. That is accepted as righteous in God's sight. He had abandoned all hope in himself and he cast himself fully upon the mercy of God, trusting in God. So when we say that we believe, we are saying that we know who Jesus is and what he has done for us, that we're convinced that he's able to save us. And that we trust Him alone for salvation. Now there's one more thing that we need to know about faith and its relationship to salvation. We are not saved by the strength of our faith. Listen closely. We are not saved by the strength of our faith. We are saved by the Savior, the strength of the Savior in whom we place our faith. Many of us here today, we know our faith, our belief this past week. We know that it's ebbed and flowed. Uh, some days our faith has been strong and some days our faith has been weak. Though the strength of our faith has fluctuated, the strength of Jesus' power to save never has. And so it was for good reason that the Genevan reformer said that Christ receives even the weakest of faith. Christ receives even the weakest of faith. Take comfort in that. Jesus is ready to receive your faith. So turn from your sins and trust in Him, believing that He lived for you, that He died for you, and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. Biblical faith 
Or belief is knowledge. It's conviction and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Well, having considered the biblical doctrine that the creed has in view, and it uses those words, we believe, let's turn and consider what devotion is due to God in response to this doctrine. So this is our third heading, devotion. What should we praise God for in response to this doctrine? Since all biblical doctrine is doxological, pertaining to God's praise, what should we praise God for in response to this? Well, we should praise God for giving us such a firm foundation for our faith. Remember, God has not called us to to trust generally or amorphously. We're not to have a vague or nebulous faith. We're called to trust God specifically, and especially His Son, Jesus Christ. We're called to have a faith that is firm, fixed, founded, and focused on who God is and what He has done in Jesus Christ. There is ground on which our faith stands, a rock on which our faith rests. We're called to trust that God is loving and generous and gracious. He's a good Heavenly Father, and He's given us solid reason to trust Him as such. Throughout the the course of biblical revelation, he's made it plain that he's loving and generous and gracious by his acts, by his words, and by his deeds. So so we see him express his love for his children. We read passages like Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, where God is described as rejoicing over his children with gladness, quieting his children with his love, and exulting over us with loud singing. God the Father has proven His love for us. So we, so we read about those passages right in the Old Testament which announce God's love and He proves His love in the sending of His one and only Son. So we rejoice in, in verses like John 3.16 that God so loved the world. That he loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish. Will not perish. But have eternal life. God has proven His love to us by giving us His one and only Son. We have an objective faith that rests in God and what He has done. He's given us uh, certainty. Our faith is grounded and fixed on who He is and what He's done. So we ought to give praise to God for giving us such a big Bible. I know it feels overwhelming at times, but He's told us about Himself over and over and over again, and He's revealed His works in His world to assure us that we are not hoping in something that is loose or false or like quicksand. No, it's solid and firm. It's like a rock. So we should praise God that he has told us of his character and proven his character over and over and over again in his word. He tells us who he is and he tells us what he has done. And this gives us certainty and ground for our faith. And we ought also to praise God that he has made it plain to us that Jesus in particular is trustworthy. Don't you love it that we have not just one, but four gospels. We have four portraits of our savior, of his life and ministry. In the Gospels, we we hear Jesus make these promises. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We hear that in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. And then in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20, we read, A bruised reed he will not break. These are our descriptions of Jesus. This is what Jesus is saying about himself. And then we actually see him act and interact in those ways with people. So isn't it so comforting that Jesus, when we watch him and read of him, encountering the lame and the blind, the diseased and the broken, that he's so gentle and kind and generous with them. In those scenes, we, we see Jesus heal them and forgive them and deal gently with them. He, he's able to do what he promised. He, he's trustworthy. And since so many 
could come to Jesus in their weakness and brokenness and sin, we know that we can come to him in our weakness and brokenness and sin. We can put our broken hearts and lives in his hands because we've seen his life and ministry. We can be thoroughly persuaded that in the words of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2, that he is able and he will deal gently with us. But we should give praise to God also that God has assured us that Jesus can save us and deliver us from death. In the Gospels, we see Jesus ending every funeral procession that he encounters. Right? From raising children from the dead to raising Lazarus. We know that Jesus truly is who he says he is. When he says he's the resurrection and the life, we know that he is speaking the truth. We know that whoever believes in him, though they may die, yet shall they live. John 11 Verses 25 and 26. And above all, God has shown us that we have warrant for our faith in Jesus by raising Jesus from the dead. Christian, you can be sure that Jesus will not leave you in your grave because he got up from his. You can be sure that he is going to take you home to be with him. His promise of preparing a place in glory for you, he will do. He is faithful and he's shown us that he has the power to do it by himself getting up from the dead. This is the record that we have in Scripture. Faith is not irrational, but rational, reasonable. We have a ground for our faith, and we ought to praise God for it. It is reasonable to trust a God who has proven himself trustworthy over and over and over again. That's what the Bible is. It's a record of God's trustworthiness. And so, we should trust him. We ought to give praise to God that he has not left our faith groundless, but he's given our faith solid ground on which to stand. What he has said he would do, and he has done in Jesus Christ. He's proven himself worthy of our faith. We praise him for his faithfulness, and we put our faith in him. Which leads to our fourth and final point, dedication. Uh, Under the heading dedication, we're interested in asking how this biblical doctrine should shape our, our lives. In what ways should we be freshly dedicated to our God and Father who made heaven and earth, who gave His one and only most beloved Son, poured out His Spirit, and brought us to faith in Christ and fellowship in His church? Well, the first way in which this doctrine about faith should transform our lives is what I've actually already implored you to do several times. Trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Examine yourself. To see if you're in the faith. Do you have the kind of faith that the Bible talks about that we've examined this morning? Do you know who Jesus is and what he's done? Are you convinced that he's able to save you? Have you abandoned any and all trust in yourself or anything else in the world for that matter to save you from your sin? And have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? You you can't. You can't um, leave this at a distance and kind of make this an academic exercise. You need to wrestle with whether or not you have faith. Here at ABC, when we confess the words of the Apostles' Creed, uh, we, we, it begins with the words, we believe. But as I hinted at earlier, this was first an individual confession. In other words, when the Creed was first written, it began with the words, I believe. And every one of us here today needs to discern whether or not we could utter those words, I believe. Do you believe? Think about your faith for a moment. Shut everyone out of the room. Think about whether or not you trust God as he revealed himself in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Do business with God. Discern today whether or not you trust Him as the Word has called you to trust Him, knowing who He is and what He's done, being convinced that He's able to save you, and resting your life and your future, your eternal future, upon Him wholly and completely. Is your faith all head? Right? Do you know gobs and gobs of doctrine? Be careful not to trust in your knowledge. Children of ABC, youth, think, think about this for yourself. I am so delighted that you know the, the, the Bible, that you're learning to master important stories in the scriptures and, and catechism questions and answers. I am delighted when, when your Sunday school teachers come to me and they tell me they know these stories. Their parents are clearly reading them, reading them to them at home and talking with them about them. Uh, they know these questions and answers. They, they, they know the truth of the scriptures. I am delighted in that with your knowledge. And you should not stop learning. You should keep learning. But here's the thing. You must not trust in your knowledge of Jesus. You must not trust in your knowledge of Jesus. You must trust in Jesus. There is a difference. And this is true for us all. Your faith must include knowledge, but it must also include conviction and trust. Maybe your faith is all conviction. Maybe it's just an amorphous, kind of nebulous. I, I just, I believe. I believe everything's going to work out. That's not the kind of faith that the scriptures talk about. They call us to trust God specifically and particularly revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ. Is your faith maybe all heart? Do you have a, a, a weighty sense that God is able to save you? Why? Do, do you believe and do you know who Jesus is and what He has done? Or do you just have this, this feeling? Have you gone to Jesus for salvation? Is your faith filled with trust? I pray that it is. For it's trust which takes knowledge and conviction in hand, and it goes to the Lord Jesus. It moves to entrust. We move to entrust ourselves to Jesus' care. Is your faith the kind of faith that possesses knowledge, conviction, and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? And when, when you think about that definition of faith, that biblical faith includes knowledge, conviction, and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, I hope that we can all appreciate how robust that faith is. Uh, I, I don't know if you've thought about it much, but this is one of the reasons that we actually don't rush baptism for children or for adults at, here at ABC. Don't get me wrong, we're, we're a Baptist church, and so we, we love to baptize people who are professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it's, it's a joy to see people publicly profess their faith that Jesus has died for them and been raised for them. But there is also great wisdom in making sure that baptismal candidates possess the proper knowledge of Jesus Christ. That they have experienced conviction of sin and have become convinced that Christ is their Savior. And that they have actually entrusted themselves to Jesus for salvation. All of that, it takes time to see develop and grow. And so because the truth, uh, because the truth is that some people make false professions. Right? Some people have a, a kind of shallow faith that's not actually faith at all. And, and Jesus himself taught about this. He, he taught this a parable of, of the, the soils. He, he, he told us that sometimes this would be the case. That sometimes the cares of this world would choke out what seemed to be real faith. And Jesus talked about this in, in Matthew chapter 13 verses 1 to 9. So it springs up, but then it gets choked out by the cares of this world. And turns out that they weren't really trusting and believing the Lord Jesus Christ to begin with, this kind of thing sadly happens often. Uh, George Whitfield, 
once said, there are so many stony ground hearers who receive the word with joy that I've determined to suspend my judgment until I know the tree by its fruits. I cannot believe they are converts until I see the fruit brought back. It will never do a sincere soul any harm to delay dubbing them a convert. You know, years ago, I had the privilege of interacting with a pastor who served a church in the, the southeast corner of Turkey. The church was in a city that was situated uh, near to Syria and northern Iraq. And needless to say, it was a fiercely Muslim context. And so that city, eight and a half million people, of whom there were only 50 believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in that city. And that church was slow to baptize. Through several conversations, I learned that they wanted their baptismal candidates to be able to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity and to be able to articulate the gospel. And they also wanted their baptismal candidates to be prepared to die for Jesus. Part of their application for baptism and church membership in that church meant that the candidate would tell their family that they were no longer a Muslim and that they were going to be baptized as a follower of Jesus. Then they would have to tell their families that they were going to be baptized and that they wanted them to come to their baptism. Now this usually meant that their family would disown them. And in some instances, their family would seek to put them to death. And what this process taught me is that they wanted to admit members into their church, those who truly trusted in Jesus Christ. So much so that they were not only willing to live for him, but to die for him too. These believers had grasped that faith in Jesus was not only important and urgent, but that Jesus was worth it too, no matter what would come. And that should invite some reflection for us too. Is our faith such that Jesus is so precious to us that we are willing to bear scorn, scorn of our families, scorn of our society, scorn of our workplace for Jesus? Do your friends and family members and coworkers know about your faith in Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, I promise you, when glory comes upon you, when your faith is turned to sight, and you see your Savior face to face. All of the scorn, all of the hostility, all of the hatred of the world will be seen for what it is, light and momentary affliction that was preparing you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Another way in which this doctrine should transform our lives is that we should realize that we are not alone. Though the Apostles' Creed was initially an individual confession, though initially the Apostles' Creed read, I believe, it's appropriate for us to remember the corporate aspect of salvation. Right? We are saved individually, that's true, and we're also saved into a church family. Even those editions of the Apostles' Creed that retain the phrases, I believe, show their hand that the corporate people of God are still in view. So, so listen closely to that, that translation of the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Jesus is not just our Lord individually. He's our Lord corporately. And He's given us to one another to spur each other on in the faith. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 to 25. And listen to our relationship to one another. As we live out our faith, the writer of the Hebrews writes in chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, we need each other to persevere in the faith. We need each other to live for Jesus Christ. At night, I'll often unwind by watching an episode of Monk. It's a detective show, and I identify a lot with the lead character, Adrian Monk, because he's peculiar and picky. Uh, But one of the themes that the show plays on often is how he is alone. He kind of wallows in his loneliness. But the truth is, is he's not really alone. He has friends, and they pull him through life, sometimes drag him through life. So the captain, the lieutenant, and his monk's assistant, they come alongside him, and they make him engage in the world and use his skills as a detective. Fellow believers in Jesus Christ are called to that kind of activity, to pull each other through life often sometimes, helping one another along in life and in faith. We need to encourage each other to keep growing in knowledge, keep growing in conviction that Jesus is a suitable, compassionate, and all-sufficient Savior, and to encourage one another to keep walking by faith. Week in and week out, what we do here is we tell each other in song and prayer and sermon, don't give up on Jesus. He won't give up on you. Keep holding on to Him. He continues to hold on to you. That's what we do in our corporate worship service. We need that encouragement week in and week out in a world that makes us weary. We need this encouragement. Jesus gave us each other because he knew we would need each other. And if you've been going about it all alone in the Christian life, if you've been managing your own spiritual portfolio, as a friend of mine likes to say, you've been doing it all wrong. You've been missing out on the blessing of Christian family in the church, the household of God. And one of the implications of the words we believe and the faith that it's described in the scriptures, that it's corporate aspect to it, there's a family who believes, is that you should link arms with a church, a Christian church in membership, where you can confess the same faith and follow the same Lord and receive strength from brothers and sisters in the Christ. You are going to need such Christian family in the days ahead, and they're going to need you too. That means that you need to be around them Perhaps more than you think, and sometimes more than you might like. But I promise you, it'll be worth it. They'll grow on you, and you'll grow on them, and together you'll grow in Christ. That's how God designed it. He designed us to believe individually and to believe as a part of God's people, visible people. We should conclude. We began this morning by confessing that we all have a creed, a statement of belief or first principles. What is your creed? What do you believe? Is the truth that the Apostles' Creed announces reflective of what you believe? More to the point, is Jesus at the heart of your creed as he is in the Apostles' Creed? Do you know him? Are you convinced that he can save you? Have you trusted in him for salvation? You can be sure that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray together.